You're listening to a Monorail News production. Now, get ready to step into the magic. Hello and welcome to Magic Time by Monorail News. This week we have a very special guest. He's the co-author of the unofficial guide to Walt Disney World. You know, the one you see in bookstores nationwide. And also the founder of touringplans.com, a service that allows you to basically reduce your wait time using um, fancy fancy algorithms in the park. It's really cool, and we're going to talk all about how that came to be um, next. So, Leon, how are you doing? I'm good, Gray. How's it going? It's going well. Um, so, what I just kind of wanted to start out with is you're a computer scientist, right? Um, and yep. h- how did you decide to to first get into writing the unofficial guide and then come to realize that your um, profession could be used in um, theme parks? So it actually started off um, as my master's thesis. Uh, the summer, my undergraduate degree is in computer science and I was going to start graduate school in computer science as well. Um, and the summer before I started uh, graduate school, I went to Disney World with my twin sister and we waited two hours in line outside in the sun for the great movie ride in Disney's Hollywood studios. And while we were standing there, um, I thought to myself, you know, there's gotta be a better way to do this where I wouldn't have to wait in line. Or, you know, if I did have to wait in line, at least I knew that it was unavoidable. Right. Right. Um, so I went back to my thesis advisors, uh, when school started and I said, I want to write a computer program where, you tell it the rides you want to ride in Disney World, and it tells you the order in which you should ride them to minimize your weight in line. And it turns out that's an incredibly complicated problem. It's actually uh, right. one of the fundamental problems in math and computer science. It's this thing called the traveling salesman problem. Um, so that became the basis for my thesis. So explain the traveling salesman problem. The traveling salesman problem uh, is usually phrased like this. Um, imagine you're a traveling salesman, and you want to drive to the 48 state capitals in the continental United States. Okay. What's the shortest path that you have to drive? What's the shortest distance you have to drive to visit all of them exactly one time with no uh, overlaps? Right. Uh, and the problem, or the, the thing that makes the problem hard is that the number of possible things you need to consider grows faster than exponentially. It grows factorially. And I'll give you an example. Um, so let's say you, you want to visit, you know, one ride in Walt Disney World. There's only one way to see it. So you just go to it, right? There's only one right. combination or permutation of paths, right? If there are two rides you want to ride, um, there's two ways, right? You can go to the first one, then the second one, or you can go to the second one, then the first one. Right? right. There's only two ways. When you have three rides, there are six possible touring plans. Um, and yeah, I'm having flashbacks four, to math class. This is, uh, this I know, is right? pretty miserable. Well, so the, it, it, it turns out the, the formula for figuring out how many different touring plans there are for N unique attractions is N times N minus one times N minus two times N minus three all the way uh, down to one. Yeah, it's okay. So for <laughs> 10, 10 rides, um, there are 10 times nine times eight times seven times six times five times four times three times two times one possible touring plans. And that's 3.6288 million for those of you keeping score. Um, I I like to tell my daughter, you know, I can keep maybe three things straight in my head at any given time. 
So, you know, asking me to go through, you know, 3 million touring plans to figure out which one is the best is, is way beyond what people can do in their right. head. Um, for, for the unofficial guide where we have somewhere between, you know, 20 and 25 steps in a touring plan, there's something like 51 million, 51 billion, billion different touring plans to analyze. Right. Um, and I mean, no one's, no one's going through that in their head. The, uh, the interesting thing is when I, when I came up with the idea, I, um, I was looking for data, like, you know, how long do you wait in line at Space Mountain at noon versus, you know, 12, 15 PM. Right. Um, and, and so I was reading the unofficial guide and so I emailed Bob Salinger. Actually, I wrote him a letter, a physical letter. And I said, here's what I'm working on. Do you have data? And it, he was working with, um, some folks at MIT at the time about how to do it. So, um, so he was already like 10 years into this problem by the time I got, oh, wow. by the time I was there. Yeah. So, but somehow we know Lynn Testa and we don't know the guys at MIT. So how did, <laughs> how did that happen? Yeah. Um, so it was a couple of things. Um, so Bob, the way that Bob and, uh, and the folks from MIT were approaching the problem was as if they were running the park, right? So imagine you, you knew you were going to have 50,000 people in the Magic Kingdom. Okay. How many logs do you have to run on Splash Mountain to keep, uh, to keep people from just giving up and not even getting in the line? How many uh, cars do you have to have on Space Mountain? the lines don't take you long and so on. Um, and how many cast members do you have to have running those things, right? How many, uh, how many cast members do you have to have loading the mad teacups, the empty party cups? A lot of complicated things. Um, but I didn't have access to any of that stuff. And frankly, that math is way beyond me. Like the queuing theory part of the math at the sure. time was, was way beyond what I, what I knew how to do. Um, but so the one thing, the one thing I, I, I did know we could get was the posted wait time at every ride. Right. right. Cause you can walk up to the ride and you can see it, right? It's pretty straightforward. And it turns out that, um, the posted wait time outside of a ride is a pretty good summary of everything that's going on behind the scenes. Like if you think about it, um, the posted wait time at Splash Mountain is a, is a function of whatever Disney's doing behind the scenes to make it run. Like however many logs they've got running on the, on the flume, how many, ever many employees they have, right? It's a combination of that plus the demand from the guests. Right. So really it's a, it's, it may not be perfect, but it's a very good summary of all of the, all of the other math that goes into it. So, so my, one of the, one of the things that I did, I mean, I think one of the, the ways, one of my contributions to this thing was to say, look, all that stuff is great, but it's not important. The only thing we really need to consider is the posted wait time. Um, so that greatly simplified the problem. Sure. So my conspiracy Um, theory about attraction wait times being artificially inflated to reduce your actual weight in the line and make you feel like you beat the system. Oh, they're, they're totally artificially inflated. That's a whole other thing. But, um, but, but if you're starting off, right, I mean, baby steps, it's, uh, um, posted wait times are where you start, right. And then you, then you can adjust from there. So you ended up becoming the co-author of the unofficial guide. How did that happen? Well, I was, um, so after I graduated in 2000, I, um, I wanted to see if we could make that into, into this into an actual product. And so what we had to do was, um, I recruited my family to go to Walt Disney world a bunch of times, like throughout the year. And we would 
just walk around the Magic Kingdom and write down wait times. This was in the the, the era before um, cell phones, right? Before right. cell phones could do things, uh, really nice things. So what we would do is we um, we actually got these, we made these spiral bound cardboard paper um, booklets with, imagine a, imagine a grid where the row, each row is a different attraction and each column is a different time of day. And as we would pass each attraction, we would write down the wait time at that time of day. So everyone would get a um, set of booklets, you know, for the different days. And we would just take turns walking around the magic kingdom, running down wait times from the time the park opened till the time the park closed. It was insane. And then we would, uh, you being like to your family, like, we're going to Disney world. Unfortunately, we're not going to ride anything. We're going 12 times and we're just going to walk around and write down wait times. So my family was great in that they, they were totally down for doing whatever it wanted. Um, and they actually came up with some really good optimizations. Like originally I was, um, so we had, let's say we had four people. I was giving, uh, making everybody work every day, but giving them hours off throughout the day. And what my family like realized halfway through day one is like, look, I will, I will all day. If the park is open from 8 a.m. until 1 a.m., I will do it for 17 hours. But I want tomorrow off. Right. Or I can go play. And that, that always makes way more sense. So, um, and they did it. I mean, they would, they would walk for 17 hours. We would, we would easily walk, you know, 20 to 30 miles in a given day. Good just in the Magic God. Kingdom, and that's and that's splitting the Magic Kingdom in that half. In Epcot. Well, so <laughs> so we have a. a I mean, I know you can because you did it. Yeah, yeah. But so the way that we would do it in the Magic Kingdom is we would start in Tomorrowland. We'd have one person start. We'd divide the park in half, east and west. One person would take west. One person would take east. And in the east side, you would start at like Buzz Lightyear, or um, you know Stitch, and you would walk through Tomorrowland up into what was then um, you know Toontown. And then over halfway through Fantasyland where Dumbo used to be behind the castle. Right. And that was, that would, if you did that, if you walk, walked as fast as you could, you could do that in like 22 minutes. And then it would take you a couple more minutes to walk back down to, um, to Buzz Lightyear to start again. So maybe if you were super, super efficient and you did it like, you did that entire route, maybe you could jog, you could do it in, in 19 minutes. And it would give you exactly 10 minutes to ride the TTA once, which takes almost exactly 10 minutes. And then you could start your loop again. But when we tried that in Epcot, you know, if you divide the park into East and West, the problem is, is once you're at the American adventure, you basically got to run back to spaceship earth. Right. And that was horrible. So for that one, we divided it into North and South. And even then it's really hard to walk all of the different attractions of the future world in half an hour. It's almost impossible. So we had to do some uh, some work there. We um we ended up assigning three people to Epcot. Okay, so you're torturing your family. That's cool. Um, it, we only had to wheel one of them out in a wheelchair. I, I consider that a success. That is success. Here's a, here's a tip, though. Like in in my defense, it was my it was my twin sister Linda. Um, in my defense, and this is this is a tip for anyone here who's going to a new job. If you show up at day one on your new job. And the first thing they do is hand you a bottle of painkillers. Start asking what what's going on there. Because I did for Linda. I was like, hey, here's some Advil. You're going to need this. And by the way, here are some uh, blister um, blister Band-Aids. You're going to need these too. And she didn't use them. I'm like, okay. Well, then, and then two days later, we had to wheel her out of Epcot because her feet had swollen to the size of 
salmon and were the color of uh, raw tuna. Like purple. no way. Oh yeah, she lost all of her toenails. Yeah. What? Yeah. Lost all of her toenails. Her feet swelled so much from the walking and the blisters that she uh, she uh, lost all of her toenails. We made a wheeler out of Epcot in a wheelchair. And yet you persisted. And yet you we're still family. I know. Doing I know. this. Yeah, and she kept doing it too. Yeah. What? I know. Yeah, it was the the original set of data that we got was was a very hard one. So we would take that data and we would um, plug it into spreadsheets and try and come up with like a generic model for Space Mountain. And it wasn't. I mean, it's not anywhere near what it was, what it is now. But um, it was an approximation. Right. So. That was, and that, so the problem was I was, or the thing was uh, for the guide, I was spending so much time in the parks that, you know, I was still reading an official guide that I would write Bob and say, Hey, you know, this thing that you mentioned in the book, this thing has changed. Um, and I would, you know, gather that all up into like one big document and say, you know, on pages 25, this thing has changed on page 26, this thing has changed. Right. Page 27. This thing. Um, and then, you know, sentence, I wrote sentences and then the sentences became, Paragraphs, paragraphs became sections, sections became pages. Um, and then in 2003, I was like, hey, I, you know, I think I've written, I think I've written enough here to be co-author and, and Bob agreed. So 2003 was the first year that I, I got to be co-author of the book. Oh, wow. And now if you so buy took, uh, the unofficial guide, you can get a promo code if I'm right for touring plans, which yep. is your thing. And the guy even yep. has like sample touring plans, right? Yeah. All the, so the interesting thing is, uh, all the, um, all the touring plans in the book are done through the software that I did for my master's thesis. But the interesting thing was, um, we, the, the way, the way to get a touring plan in the book is to get to beat the old version of the touring plan. So we would do head to head testing of the old touring plan and a new proposed touring plan to see which one, um, you know, worked out best. And we would recruit families, um, to test this which was super interesting too. Um, but the, the touring plan for the animal kingdom, um, that Bob had come up with was so good that the software didn't beat it. The software couldn't beat it until 2005 when expedition Everest opened and then it became complicated enough. Um, the touring plan became complicated enough that they actually needed software to, to do it. Right. Because but, animal uh, kingdom didn't have many rides. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, there just wasn't much to, uh, there wasn't enough stuff to, to differentiate it. So even then, I mean, there's probably, you know, a few tens of thousands of different combinations, but Bob had figured it out. Yeah. Right. So what did we do when we met up in the park a couple of weeks ago, you were testing a touring plan. Yeah, we, I was testing a, um, I was testing a, a touring plan that started at 11 AM when we think most people are in the park. And my sister was doing the same thing. We were doing side-by-side testing. We had uh, each had 16, the 16 most popular attractions in the park. And the question was whether, um, uh, the question was how much time you could save following a touring plan versus just going in popularity order of the attractions. And, and I know nobody knows the popularity order of the attractions. I had to, I had to come up with one way of um, proposing you visit attractions. So I went with that. And on that day, um, the, crowds were so low at the magic kingdom that the, the differentiating factor between the two touring plans was whether you got stuck in line behind a cleaning process. Yeah. Cause I remember when and we were that, walking to pirates and you like looked at your watch. You're like, they're starting the cleaning process. Run. 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So the Magic Kingdom is, is when the Magic Kingdom opens at nine, the cleaning processes at the time when you and I were there were uh, every two hours. So at 11, one, three, and five, and the park closed at seven. Um, so you, you could predict when the, um, when the rides would be stopped so that Disney could clean all the ride vehicles, send them through the ride once empty, and then start the ride up again. Now, since then, they've actually changed the process. Now they're cleaning every other ride vehicle constantly, um, which makes it much more uh, regular in terms of how they're processing lines. And that's a that's an improvement. The other way was bad. Yes, so the other way was wasn't great. So. I remember standing in line in like the sun for Haunted Mansion with you, right? Um, for like yeah. twenty minutes, it yeah. felt like and twenty minutes. It could have been hours. I don't know. <laughs> it could have been days. Who knows? Yeah, and that was that. That part wasn't. It wasn't a great guest experience. I'm glad Disney's changed that. Yes, because um, I remember uh, before earlier that day, I went to Haunted Mansion and I was going to ride it, and they're like, "We're starting cleaning," and I noped right back out. I'm like, "Nope, um, not not doing that." Yeah, um, and I ended up doing it later. Um, so you know, things happen. So you. I imagine that your unofficial guide and touring plans have really been shaken by the operational changes since coronavirus. It's uh, it's kind of hard to keep up, but we're uh, we're working on it. The big thing is um, for us making sure that the uh, or detailing how the ride experience has changed. Right. So in in some respects. Once you're on Pirates of the Caribbean, the ride experience is the same as it's always been, right? right. The same story, same sort of classic story. Um, the thing that's different starts before that. The fact that um, you're only in the front or last, or first or last row of the boat right. on Pirates of the Caribbean, or the fact that everyone's six feet apart in the line, and what does that mean for you know for wait times and for where you're standing and things like that? Those are the things that we're we're trying to to figure out for people, and then. Um, you know, operationally, that's it. But then the larger question is, and the one that we're sort of working our way through now is, is it worth it? Right? Given all the changes, given all the stuff that you can't do in Walt Disney World, is it still worth 120 to 150 dollars a day, you know, per person, or 109 right. to 150? And so we're we're sort of working our way through that right now. Someone asked me after I went, and they asked me personally, Gray, to you, is it worth it? And I said to them, I <laughs> yeah. said. If you're a Disney fan and you love the parks, you're going to love being able to ride Space Mountain as many times as you want with a five-minute wait. Yeah. If you've never been before, you're going to want the parades, the fireworks, the character meet and greets. You want the whole shebang. So I would say hold off until we get that back was just my feeling on it. I think that I think that's somewhere where we're going to land. Personally, I don't miss the parades. I think the parades that they have right now, the cavalcades, are good enough. Yeah, no, I um, I'm not a parade person. But I know people are, you know, and the the yeah it, it, the the fireworks I think are the big thing that, that that's missing. Um, the fireworks and the character greetings actually are the the two big things I think that that are missing. If they could somehow figure those two things out, um, even the even the fireworks, if they could figure the fireworks out. I think it'd go a long way towards assuaging uh, a lot of the uh, a lot of the concerns that people have about about value. The the, the way that I, the thing I'm telling people is, is this: um, 
I, I'm approaching, you know, visiting Walt Disney World and paying for it the same way that I'm approaching ordering takeout from my favorite restaurant that I used to eat in in person. Is it the same experience? No. Is the food as good? No, because it's delivery instead of getting it fresh. Do I want this place to succeed so that, you know, two years from now, I can start going back in person and having things the way they were? Yes, most definitely. And I'm willing to pay for that. Yes. So so that's my best analogy. So go on your trip, it's investment in your future trip. Um, you know, if, if you're a fan, right, you're right, going yeah. to suck it up and you're going to go because you want, you want the parks to succeed. You know, um, I was thinking as I was visiting the resort, I was thinking that, you know, if they do fireworks, they're probably going to have to keep the parks open later. Do you think that would mean that they would shorten the opening hours and maybe move from like 9 to 11 so it could be open until like 9, you know, when the fireworks are? Well, don't forget um, the days are going to get shorter here for a little bit. Oh, in, yes, in a little yes, bit, yes, yes. And, um, and it'll get darker sooner. So um, even if they keep the park closing at 7, you know, by, I would say by October, 7 o'clock might be dark enough for uh, for fireworks. The, the other, But I don't know that they necessarily need to keep the parks open for the fireworks because the Magic Kingdom fireworks, the fireworks themselves, not the projections on the castle, you can see the fireworks from all around the Magic Kingdom uh, resort area. Right. And the, that's more space, I think, than there's more, there's, there's more space outside the park for social distancing than there right. is in the park. That's my, my feeling. So they could do the fireworks at night um, for Disney Resort guests. And I think, um, I think that's a possibility, even in an abbreviated form. Um, so I think that's an option. Right. I'd like to see fantasy in the sky, folks. Right, exactly. Well, you know, and then I was thinking that they obviously want to bring back park hopping at some point. Like that was to me the thing I missed more than the fireworks. Yeah, especially the ability to go to Epcot at night for dining. Yes. Um, But that's complicated by the fact that so many restaurants in Epcot are not open. Right. Um, that there's no point in sending people over to there to eat when there aren't enough restaurants to feed them. So that's that's a that's a challenge there too. There's a lot of moving pieces. I'll tell you for the first yeah, time I ever, I ate at Spice Road Table. Oh, how was it? The chocolate pyramid was delicious. Was it? It was pretty good. You know, it came with a scoop of ice cream, which satisfied both my cravings, um, especially now with Apple Hills not reopening at the boardwalk. Yeah, that's kind of sad. The, the interesting thing about um, Spice Road Table, from my perspective, is it when it first opened, it did not get very good um, reviews from our readers. It was it was much below average. And usually restaurants that start off like that stay like that. They, they just don't get better. Um, but this one did. It's now it's now slightly ever so slightly above average. Um, for Walt Disney World restaurants, which is a huge improvement. Like I, I would struggle to think of another restaurant that has improved that much in that relatively short period of time. You know, a couple of years. Um, most restaurants would just would just say this is what we are, what what we are, and, and leave it. So credit to their management team for for improving that. In fact, I might say they're tonight for dinner. The only dish I had a problem with, and I would not recommend, were the like the spicy garlic shrimp. I was just really underwhelmed yeah. with how small the shrimp were. 
Um, but then again, I did just eat at the boathouse like the night before and had their sea of cortege shrimp from the raw bar. So that might have like, maybe maybe not a fair comparison. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, I was thinking about that while I was eating them. I mean, they were seasoned really well and they tasted great, but just the size after seeing those sea of cortege shrimp were just underwhelming. It's really hard for a lot of places to compete with boathouse. I mean, that's why, uh, um, Paddlefish you know, isn't doing well. It's just literally around the corner. There's a better restaurant serving the same food. I also ate at Paddlefish, and I told um, my friend who I was traveling with, my cousin, um, I said, you know, Paddlefish to me, the fish Paddlefish here because I'm saying this on air, Paddlefish to me is like a lesser boathouse. Yeah, it's true. It's, uh, it's, it, it's not nearly highly as rated by people. It's easier to get into uh, for that reason. Yeah, it's just not the same. No, but they have similar you – know, they're both kind of seafood-focused. Yeah, um, and that, that, that's where I was a little bit surprised that Disney would open two seafood-based restaurants that close to each other, you know? Like you're, you're basically it, – it's basically a death match between the two because I, I don't know that there's enough demand for two restaurants of that size to be – You know, did you know that, uh, by the way, the Boathouse um, last year was – the sixth highest grossing independent restaurant in the United States. Seriously? Yeah. Isn't it done by Gibsons? I don't know who the uh, who it is. That's what they always tell me when I go in because they have the Gibson steak. Um, is it? For out of Chicago. Um, they say it's their first um, non-Chicago, non-Gibsons branded um, venture. Interesting. And I'll tell you, I, I really love Gibson's in Chicago. So, like having that would that make sense, though, because they do have it. Yeah, they've got one. In, they've got one in Chicago, right? They've got one in. Um, they've one in South Florida. Maybe, maybe. Um, yeah, it's just um, it's good. I'm googling this now. Yeah, both restaurants are really, really enjoyable. Um, yeah. You know, my favorite thing. Uh, I'm a big oyster, raw oyster person. So having mm. the the variety of oyster types that um, Boathouse has really, really tickles yeah. my fancy, especially the Lucky Ducks oysters. Yeah, those are good, yeah. Yeah. Mm, I'm thinking about them right now. <laughs> Time to book a flight. Um, you know, it's... Um, oh, it, is the, it is the Gibson restaurant group. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, it's, you know, um, really good. Go to Gibson's, go to the boathouse. You'll be happy um, and full. Yeah. yeah, I learned something today. Thank you. The only thing I wish they would do differently at the boathouse, I wish, they had, I wish they would have a smaller version of the s'mores dessert that's like as big as my head. The, dessert, the desserts are huge. The, uh, the big Alaska is, you know, two feet tall and it's a quarter of a pie. That's two feet tall. It's a lot. Um. But still, I mean, you can't you can't complain about the value for the money. No, I mean, I'm a dessertaholic, but even I can't justify the um, as one or two people. I can't justify the sixty dollar baked Alaska. I mean, you know, to me that it's it's for the table, right? It's for the table. Yeah, I have to get like four of my friends to come with me, and then we could get it. Um, because I know I personally, even though I can put down ice cream, I don't think I can put down that much. Like that to me is like going to beaches and cream, you know, yeah. and having the kitchen sink mm-hmm. Sunday. Beaches and cream. Mm-hmm. 
food. Yeah. Um, I feel like Homer Simpson over here. Donuts. Um, yes, yeah, so, you know, to me, I think we are in a very interesting time, especially looking head, ahead at the resort, because so much stuff has been shelved or um, right. totally, you know, pushed off. Um, reflections, the festival center, et cetera, et cetera. Mary Poppins. You know, I was really looking yep. forward to the festival center. It was, it's one of those things where like Mary Poppins, I think was an easy cut to make because the ride itself hadn't been defined like other than a couple of very, very vague uh, pieces of concept art and video. Nobody really knew what kind of a ride or kind of experience it was going to be. So that was easy enough to cut. Um, Same thing with Spaceship Earth, right? It was, Spaceship Earth is, is, is one of the super popular attractions in Walt Disney World. And and so spending the money to, to add Disney characters to it may not have had the, the incremental benefit worth the cost. Which I tell you, I'm happier with Spaceship Earth without the Disney characters. Like yeah, if me they could too. just I mean, replace I, the track now so it doesn't go thump, diddle, thump, diddle, thump, <laughs> uh, and overdo the narration, um, yeah. you know, I would be, I'd be a happy person. I like Judy Dench. I like the scenes the way they are. Maybe just freshen them up a little bit and I'll be yeah. happy. Um, but go ahead. I'm sorry. And then the, uh, the festival center was, was interesting because three stories um, and it was there to support food and beverage sales throughout the year in future world. And I think that the concern there was, was several parts. One, um, we're not sure when people are going to be able to eat on floors one and two and enclosed spaces anytime soon. Right. And then number three, um, or number two, um, on the third floor, if you're going to use that for corporate events, when's the next time that we're going to have enough corporations willing to send people to Florida to experience something like that. And when was this festival center supposed to open? I remember just never quite hearing that. Uh, I don't know that they ever set a date, but my, my sense is it would have been sometime in 2022. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, ho- I hope we're over this by 2022. <laughs> I can't deal with another full year of this. Um, yeah, that's, that's- I mean, obviously the economy won't be back rolling until in 2022, probably, but I'm hoping we'll be like yeah. over the actual virus part and we can have some semblance of normalcy. Yeah. I think the vaccine is going to be the big thing. And I think the, what's going to happen is people are going to take, take stock in late December and early January about where progress is on a vaccine. And if it looks like that, if it looks like the economy is starting to come back and we'll have a vaccine out and available and in the population by, you know, early summer, people will book travel again. Right. And I think there's a lot of pent up demand for places like Walt Disney world. Sure. So what um, do you think people, the 50th? Go ahead. I'm sorry. I'm oh my God, yeah. interrupting. That to me no, 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 no. worries me. Yeah, we talked just, about this in the park. Well, I think it could be much scaled down now. I, think, I don't think they have any other choice. Um, I don't know. There's, so much, so much of what they wanted to do relied on, you know, a, a constant stream of revenue. Nobody saw that. No, nobody could predict that, you know, the, the parks were going to earn almost $2 billion less last quarter than they, uh, than they did the year before. Right. 
And so, you know, if you extrapolate that out over the next year or, you know, five quarters, you know, that's $10 billion. And so, you know, how do you, how do you plan a 50th anniversary for Walt Disney World when you've got $10 billion less in net income than you, right. than you would normally have had? That's, that's a lot. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I just um, hope we you know, get point, I'd, good, I'd, you know. <laughs> yeah, I'd, if, I'd be happy, you know, if we got if we got Ratatouille open, if we got um, Gal- uh, Guardians of the Galaxy open, if we got Tron open, and maybe the Star Wars Hotel, but even then, if not, that's fine. I would um, be content if they just can make it feel festive. You know, if you make, if you spruce up the park enough that you have the decorations and you have some your new music and maybe you slightly change Festival of Fantasy and Happily Ever After, I'll be happy. Oh yeah, they can customize the. Um, well, we want, we, if we have the parades and then they customize them, yeah, that'd be fine. Yeah. I mean, you know, I don't think we. I think I, I would be content with something like Disneyland 60th. Where it was, you know, more cosmetic changes, you know, surface level that can be taken down afterwards than it was yeah. opening a big, substantial new attraction. Yeah. I, you know, again, if they, if they just complete the things that are almost done, we'll, we'll call it good, you know. And because, I mean, I think the things that they're working on are going to be pretty interesting. I think Ratatouille is going to be a great ride for Epcot because it'll be, it's family friendly. And it'll pull people away from Future World and away from Frozen, right? Um, so, uh, if you think about how you know theme parks are designed, the people who run the theme parks kind of want there to be guests evenly distributed around the park, and right. so this will pull some people back into World back Showcase area of that park, right? Yeah, yeah. So that'll be so more even distribution. It'll lower the lines at Soarin' and Test Track. Um, so that's good. So I think you know if we get that. It also help when Guardians opens because then everyone will go to the front of the park. But right. Guardians is a coaster, so uh, you know parents with small children can still head for the back of the park. Right. And again, you, you keep people spread out. And fingers crossed for Tron. I, I'm really excited about Tron. I, you, when uh, when we were in Fantasyland, I think we both talked about being interested in how Disney was going to theme that coaster so that it fit into storybook circus. Yeah. Right? So like, how are they going to, are they going to block the view with trees or billboards or, because it doesn't make sense for, for you to be writing barnstormer when Tron light cycle is right there. Like that's a, the juxtaposition of those two visuals requires some explanation. Unfortunately, Lynn, the explanation has been budget cut out. Yeah, um, I know. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> theming? What's theming? Yeah. Um, you know, it's going to be, I think, an interesting next couple of years, for sure. It will. And, you know, I, I think I'll be definitely keeping an eye on what you guys do at Touring Plans, because you guys historically have been um, right, you know, and... I've been a Touring Plans customer for years now, and now whenever I tell someone, like someone's, I'm going to Disney World, I'm like, subscribe to Touring Plans, and I'm not just telling you that because I know Lynn Testa, who founded the website. <laughs> um, That's very nice of you. Thanks. Yeah, I mean, we, you know, we have, you know, every year, or I mean, this year's going to be a little bit different, but, you know, more than 100,000 families use the software every year. Wow. Um, the vast majority of them are 
super satisfied with it. So, and I like to think we, uh, you know, we, we try and uh, make, make the whole process easier and get people better, you know, better value for money. So the things that we work on on the site are, are related to that. I love the restaurant reservation finder. If you don't, if you're a toilet okay. customer and you don't know about that, that is like a godsend. That has gotten me so many good reservations over the years. That is yeah, just phenomenal. And also the room request. I know that they've added that into the official MDE app, but having the map of the whole resort like you guys have just makes it yeah. so helpful. And I, can, I can look and see the view out my window. Yes. Yeah, that, that was really interesting. We um, so the story behind that was when when I started working for the guide, um, Bob and I agreed that b- both of us would read all of the emails and answer them, so they would get delegated. And that would you know it was great back in you know the early two thousands when relatively few people had or were using email, but right. as time went on, the uh, it, you know and it, it, it's obviously so much easier to send an email than a letter. Um, the number of emails that we got in, in any given day you know, grew. So in 2011, I got 16,000, more than 16,000 emails related to the unofficial guide. So it works out to be about 40 a day, 40, 42 or 43 a day. Yeah. Which is basically a full-time job. And so we were, we were looking for ways to answer a lot of the common questions automatically. So we wouldn't have to, to hand write a response. And a lot of those questions were related to picking the right room or getting the, you know, finding a, finding a quote, right room at a Disney hotel. So for the unofficial guide, more than 90% or right at 90% of the people who read the book stayed at Disney hotel. Okay. Um, and for them, we, we started, we started in the book mentioning that certain rooms were categorized as a low cost category by Disney because of the way Disney does room views. But if you sort of looked at your window, just slightly left or right, you could, you could see a much better thing. Like for example, um, you know, there's a set of rooms, uh, 39 XX in uh, Tokelau at the Polynesian where it, Disney used to categorize them as garden view because you were looking out at another building, but all you had to do was like turn your head 20 degrees and you can see the magic kingdom. Right. Right. So, so be, the way that Disney classifies room views is imagine putting your hands up to your eyes so that you can only see straight ahead. Like you had oh, blinders on. Man, I don't have peripheral vision. Okay. I already oh, do okay, that. So there you go. So, so exactly. For you. Yeah. So if you're looking straight ahead, what do you see? That's the view. Um, but and people, and so for that, it's a, it was the cheapest view. It was a standard view room. Right. But you know, if you just turned your head slightly, you could see the magic kingdom and the fireworks. And so all of a, all of a sudden, you know, that became a, the, the kind the, the room that you want to, to request. So we, um, so what we did for, to answer those emails, Bob and I were sitting at a bar one night, um, at, the, at pop century actually. And we, we were trying to figure out how we could build a database that said for any, any criteria that you wanted, whether it was a good view or a quiet room or something close to the pool or something close to the lobby or close to restaurants, whatever. We built a database of these rooms where we could show you what you were getting. Like how long would that take? And so the, like pretty quickly we, 
realized that the view from the room was, was really important. So we, we called our local photographer over. His name is Richard. And we, uh, we sent him to photograph all of the rooms in one building of pop century. There's 192 rooms in one building of pop. And he came back in under an hour and did it. Um, so we're like, okay, well, you know, if you could do 192 rooms in under an hour, then he's got 30 some thousand hotel rooms, you know, we could be done in a month and it ended up taking him like four months to do it because of scheduling and stuff like right. that. But eventually, um, he was able to get photos of the views that you, you see from every value, every moderate. And then for the deluxes, all the first floor, um, rooms. So we ended up with, uh, and then we built maps. So we built maps that uh, on the site that show you um, building by building, floor by floor, where all of the rooms are located in those buildings. And then if you click on a particular room, we'll show you the view from that room. And along with the view, we give you other information like what kind of beds are in it, whether it's got um, accessibility things like um, uh, uh, teletype phones or um, or TTYs or you know handrails in the right. in the bathrooms or whatever. So we built up an entire database of that, basically by asking our friends in Disney, you know, room by room for that information. And so when we when we launched it in 2015, we we started with 30,000 photos. We had we had we had maps for every building in Walt Disney World, every building of every resort and every okay. floor. But we didn't we didn't have photographs. But we seeded it with 30,000 photos. And what we did was we asked our users, hey when you're checking into a a hotel, if we don't have a photo of that view from that room, could you send it to us? And in normal times, we'll get 100 or 200 photos a week. And so over the course of a couple of years, we were able to get virtually all of the missing photos. Oh, wow. um, That we had. I mean, there's still some rooms that we're missing, but, you know, we have like the room next door. So we'll tell you, here's the view from the room next door. This should be pretty close. Right. Um, But that was, yeah. Go ahead. And the so the the interesting thing about that was nobody had it was it was one of those things where the project seemed so big that I think no one ever even attempted it. But when you break it down to individual components, like you know, number one, get the photos; number two, draw the maps. You know, now you got to bring them together. It's it's really not that hard. I mean, it was time consuming, but from a technology perspective, none of it was like super difficult to do and people were amazed when it came out like i got i got emails from people who said when it came out that they would basically get a glass of wine and just click through all the photographs from the poly just to see what the resort looks like um, which was really interesting you know? um, and then uh, and then you know so over time we started seeing some really interesting things like we one of the first things we did was um, if you, we realized that people wanted to request specific rooms with really good views. So we set up a feature where if you told us the room you wanted and your Disney reservation number, and when you were checking in, we would actually fax, like literally fax using a fax machine, fax that room request to Disney on your behalf. And at its peak, we were sending over 3000 faxes a month to Disney way more than that. Um, and I use and then eventually every time I come. <laughs> yeah. So eventually Disney, um, the, the, the difficult part was like when the fax machines ran out of paper, 
we'd have to call someone at the resort and say, could you check your fax machine? And most of the time, cast members are really good with that. But other times they'd be like, look, dude, we ran out of fax machine paper and I don't know where to buy it anymore because it's not the eight, 1980s anymore, um, which was really funny. Um, but we, you know, we talked to the room assigners at each resort and, and they were, they were super gracious in handling our requests and stuff. And then eventually Disney out of the blue, I mean, Disney emailed me one day, like completely out of the blue and said, um, we're getting rid of the fax machines. Here's an email address to use instead, which was amazing because they'd never acknowledged that we were doing it to that point. Like we knew they were, they were handling the requests. Cast members were, were great about it. Um, so we knew that the, cause we would hear from our, from our users and our readers that they got, you know, the exact room that they request or the room next door or whatever. So we knew it was working, but we didn't know who in Disney was doing it. And eventually we got an email from them one day saying, you know, next week we're turning off the faxes at all the resorts. Could you use this email address? I said, and they gave us a private email address, um, to use for the requests. So, um, to their credit, I mean, we're not, we don't make any money when we, when we send those, obviously it's one of those things that started off as an interesting idea. Could we do this as a technological, could we solve this problem? And then, um, it became something that people really, really like. And I think Disney realizes that if they can get a room, if the people can request a specific room and get it, the satisfaction of getting that room is, is, is much higher. So uh, to the, like I said, to their credit, uh, the people who, the room assigners and the people in centralized inventory management just do a fabulous job in, in handling all those requests. I, I don't know how they do it, but I'm exceptionally grateful that they do. Touring plans really is just an awesome service. And if you even aren't planning to go down to Orlando, like I'm not, I don't always have a trip to plan, but I subscribe to it anyway, just to peddle around on the website and look at the crowd <laughs> calendar to like hypothetically plan out trips in my head. Um, it's fun. You should definitely try it, listeners. Um, Lynn, thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, where can they find you besides touringplans.com? So I do a podcast with uh, with my friend Jim Hill. It's called uh, the Disney Dish Podcast. Great podcast it's over by the way. At, uh, thank you. DisneyDish.bandcamp.com. And you can find us at Monorail News on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter and monorailnews.com. You can go to our sponsor, Walt Life, Disney subscription boxes with fun parks merchandise, and use the promo code MONORAILNEWS10 for $10 off your first purchase. That'll be it for us today. We'll see you in two weeks with another episode. Mm Bye-bye.